Hello Church. Today we're reading about oppression, toil and friendlessness in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Hey everyone, I'm Ben, if I haven't met you before, I'm the community pastor here, and we're in the middle of a series right now, which is called Chasing After the Wind. We're looking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and and throughout the book we see that phrase repeated again and again about life, that it's like a chasing after the wind. In the first week, we saw that the world goes around and around as generations of human beings come and go. The river keeps filling, going into the ocean, but never actually fills it up. And the sun keeps rising and falling, despite whatever generation comes and goes in this world. Time takes us all away eventually. In the second week, we saw that all of our pursuits, whether it's after work or pleasure or wisdom, are ultimately futile because death gets every single one of us in the end. And then last week, we looked at, and I know this is depressing, but welcome to church, welcome to Ecclesiastes. Last week, we looked at 
the seasons of life. We looked at the fact that we don't ultimately have control over what happens to us. Whether it's a time to be born or a time to die, we don't have control over the seasons of life. And this week, Kohelet turns his eyes to look at our societies. And he takes a look at some of the senseless and unjust things that happen in the justice system, that happen in our economic systems, the way we do work, in how we do our social systems, the way we do relationships. He looks at all of these things and, 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 and gives us the wisdom that he can for us. And all those topics are actually so relevant to us. I mean, take work, for example. I was just speaking to my growth group earlier this week and we were going around the circle and we are just asking one another, what's been happening? How are you doing? And I'd say probably more than 80% of people brought up issues to do with work. Um, Some people are just stressed. Some people feel overworked. Others felt like they almost couldn't cope with it. And another one of our members actually said that they work weekdays and weekends. And so we're like, okay, hang on a second. So you're actually saying you don't have a single day off? And they were like, nah, not really. I work like every day of the week. (laughs) We were so surprised. We couldn't believe it. So many of us struggle with overwork, with stress, with busyness. This touches the lives of many of us. And I think sometimes we assume that that's just how life is. That's just what we're supposed to be doing. That's how life is. But what if God didn't actually require that of us? What if our our busyness and our striving was actually the result of some cultural values that we have and not the result of biblical values? Would you do something about that? Because our text today is going to give us some wisdom for living. Kohelet is going to give us some keys on how to do work well and how to do relationships well. And ultimately, he's going to point us to what we need if we are going to escape the futility and the meaninglessness of life under the sun. And as we open up our text, Kohelet has four lessons for us. He tells us, first of all, to look at the tears. He tells us that work is not all or nothing. He tells us that we're better together. And he tells us that leaders come and go. He says, look at the tears, verses 1 to 3. Work is not all or nothing, verses 4 to 8. We're better together, verses 9 to 12. Leaders come and go, verses 13 to 16. All right, well, let's take a look at our first lesson. Look at the tears. And I'm going to read the first three verses for us. This is what Kohelet says, the teacher. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. The teacher is worked up here. He's emotionally charged because he looks at the oppression that happens in our world and how so often the people who are oppressed have no power. They've got no one to come alongside them. They have no comforter. 
And he places a big emphasis on the tears of the oppressed. So the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word hine comes just before the Hebrew word for tears in the text. And hine is a little bit like our exclamation mark. It adds emphasis, it adds oomph to what you're about to say. And when he puts hine before tears here, it's kind of like he's saying, look, behold, the tears of the oppressed. He wants us to look at them. I don't know if you've ever watched the movies or read the books, The Hunger Games, um, but I've done both. And when I read the books, I just devoured them. I loved them. And in the book, you have uh, a wealthy city called the Capital and 13 districts surrounding it in varying states of poverty. And uh, the districts all produce different things for the wealthy citizens of the capital. So, so some people in one district will do the mining, others will be fishermen, others will be farmers, and they all provide the goods and the services that people in the capital enjoy. And the capital is full of people who sometimes have a bit of empathy in them. Some of them actually turn out to be good, but pretty much all of them are just busy chasing after stupid trinkets and being entertained to really stop and take a look at the oppression that is sustaining their lifestyle, the oppression of the people who are in the districts. And I've heard someone say before that that's a really good picture of the wealthy West. So many of us have the money and the opportunities to look forward to the next car or the next holiday or the next home or to binge on Netflix. And we make ourselves so busy with these things that often we can avoid and look away from the tears of the oppressed and from the injustices that go on in our world. And that's why the teacher is so grieved, because no one cares and no one helps them. I myself have been guilty of saying to my wife, Michan at times um, when she said, hey, let's watch this documentary or this movie that looks a bit dark or, or have you seen this news article? I've sometimes said, I, I don't want to hear about it right now, babe. It's just too dark. It's too depressing. I don't want to spoil the mood. But in this first lesson, Kohelet is asking us to stop and to take a good hard look at these senseless injustices in our world. That's difficult but it's necessary. David Gibson in his book on Ecclesiastes talks about how often we flick the channel when a news report comes up that we don't like. And he describes one such news report about, and I quote, Peter Connolly, referred to as Baby P during the trial of his parents. He was a 17-month-old boy in London who died after suffering over 50 injuries during an eight-month period. During that time, he was repeatedly seen by healthcare professionals who failed to notice the harm he was enduring. He was left in a home of unspeakable abuse and trauma by people who had the power to rescue him. Just earlier this week, Michan showed me a news article on the ABC about a man, a Queensland man, who was convicted of murder over a six-month-old boy. Earlier this year, um, read in the news that, and I quote, that an ex-NRL player, his wife and their three children have died after a car fire in Brisbane. Rowan Baxter and the children, all under 10, were found dead at the scene by emergency responders, police said. His wife, Hannah Baxter, died later in hospital from extensive burns. She had reportedly jumped from the car yelling, he's poured petrol 
on me. Tragic, unjust, evil. When we hear about these things, we don't really have words to say. Uh, They really avoid quick, trite explanations. And the teacher doesn't give us one either. He simply says, And I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born and has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. As Christians, sometimes we think we need to have all the answers, that we need to be the joyful, the triumphant, laughing ones. But sometimes the wise person just stops and listens and looks at the tears of the downtrodden. It's okay to feel upset and disturbed by our world because that's an accurate emotional response to some of the things that are happening in our world. We don't need to resist that. We don't need to run away from that. Sometimes we need to take a long, hard look at the oppression and the injustice that goes on. And the teacher's first piece of wisdom is to simply look at the tears. Perhaps that will move us to do something about it, but he doesn't even go that far himself. He just tells us to look and then he moves on without any further advice. You see, some things are so dark and so dense, senseless that they're unanswerable on this side of eternity. And I don't know about you, but I don't like leaving things unresolved. But that's what the teacher does here. He wants us to feel that discomfort. And then he just moves on to his next topic. He looked at the justice system in our societies And now he moves on to the economic system in our society. He's going to take a look at the way we work and he's going to tell us how to do work well. And he basically says, here's the second lesson, that work is not all or nothing. Work is not all or nothing. In verse 4 he says, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. Now let's stop here for a moment. Notice the contrast between this verse and the first lesson we've just talked about. In the first lesson, we looked at how so often we don't look at the tears of the oppressed. We don't mourn with those who mourn. And in this verse, we look at how we don't rejoice with those who are rejoicing, with those who are succeeding. Instead, we're envious. I think it was a Bible college professor who once said, you can tell a person's moral compass by what they mourn over and by what they rejoice over. So often we mourn when people are rejoicing and we rejoice when people are mourning. We, we get upset when someone gets the lucky break, the dream partner, the amazing holiday. And, and we get this sometimes sick sense of gladness when the know-it-all fails an exam or the proud person gets what's coming to them or the tall poppy gets cut down. That's the result of envy and competitiveness. And our culture, even our economic system, encourages it. Have you ever stopped to think about how so much of our work and our toil is driven by this? I'm not just talking about paid work. I'm talking about any kind of work. Whether you're a CEO, a gardener, or a parent, 
We're so often driven by competition and beating the Joneses, and it's just not one of God's values. You know, before I became a parent, I was totally unaware of the competition that goes on between some parents, the way that they compare their children with another. Michan told me recently about a mother who posted in a forum. She was asking an innocent question. She had a nine-month-old baby, and she was asking other ladies with nine-month-olds um, when their children started talking and, and what their first words were. When do they start talking? What are their first words? And uh, one lady replied with this. She said, My little girl can sign milk, bed, nappy, more, clap, hello, goodbye, duck, butterfly, rabbit, eat, drink. She can say, Dan dad for granddad, auntie for auntie, hiya, quack, nana, ash, mama. She is also walking unaided, just by the way. <laughs> Another lady apparently commented later and said, wow, I think your baby's a genius. Now, I don't know that lady's heart, so I don't want to place judgment on her. But it, it felt as if she was saying these things because she wanted other people to envy her. It felt as if that she wanted people to know how much further ahead her child was. And, and this is what we so often do with our work, whether it's parenting or whether it's managing a business, or whether it's the way we garden or take care of our homes, so much of our work is driven by envy, and it's sad, and it's not the way God designed us to work. And you know, we had so much cultural wisdom floating around about work as well. And it sometimes worries me about how much of it has infiltrated into the church. Because we, when we live and we breathe in a particular culture, we don't realize that sometimes a cultural value that we have is not actually a biblical value. Adele Calhoun says, Our nation likes sayings such as, The early bird catches the worm. No pain, no gain. Early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. A penny saved is a penny earned. Time is money. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Work won't kill you. Do your best. Never give up. And the one with the most toys wins. These bits of advice make us a productive nation, but they also make us a restless, driven, and exhausted people. Now, let me be honest uh, with you guys. We've got a whole bunch of Dutch and Dutch South African people in our church. Now, I love you guys. I'm not going to knock you. But one of your big values is hard work. Now, that's wonderful. But when it is taken to its extreme, it can be dangerous. So let's listen to the teacher's wisdom on this subject. Let's listen to what he has to say about work. This is what he says, verses 5 and 6. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Okay? All the Dutch people, let's say, Amen. But better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now the teacher is telling us here, it's not all or nothing. Some of us look around at the success of others and we fold our hands. We give up. We stop trying. And the teacher says that these people end up ruining themselves. Actually, if you literally translate out the Hebrew, it sounds more like this. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You see, when we just choose to be idle and lazy, 
We not only give up on work, we give up on ourselves. Like William Brown says, as toil can be all-consuming, so idleness is self-cannibalizing. Now, in our cultural wisdom, we might say, that's right, tell them, Colette, tell them to get off their butts and get to work. But that's not what he ends up saying. Let's see what he actually says. He says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil, with work, and chasing after the wind. Okay, so the teacher talks about our work rhythms with the analogy of handfuls. We've only got two hands. We've only only got a limited amount of time. Some of us tend to fold our hands and we end up eating our own flesh in the end. Some of us grab hold of work with both hands and we'll see a final story about a man and what happens to him when we do that. But the teacher says it's better to take toil, to take work with one hand and to take rest, to receive tranquility with the other. That's his wisdom for work. A pastor called Philip Riken, he wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes. And in it, he tells a story about how Alan Goodman, in a provocative column for the Minneapolis Tribune, a newspaper, told the tragic story of a man who made work his everything. This man died at the age of 51. This is what uh, Philip Riken says, and I quote, His obituary said the cause of death was coronary thrombosis, but most people knew better. At the office six days a week, often until eight or nine at night, his friends and family said that he had simply worked himself to death. When a friend said, I know how much you will miss him, to his wife, his wife replied, oh, I've already missed him. Now, isn't that tragic? Isn't that sad? Work and rest are gifts from God, but when we make them all or nothing, we ruin ourselves. Work is not all or nothing. It's a gift from God. It's a good thing to be grasped with one hand. Colette finishes this lesson by telling a story about a lonely man who worked and worked and worked and worked, but he was never content with his wealth. And he finally asked himself in verse 8, for whom am I toiling and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? And that's what he wants us to stop and do today. That's what the teacher wants us to stop and ask. Whether you're a CEO or a gardener or a parent, ask yourself this question. Why do I work every day? What is the motivation behind doing what I do? Take a moment to think about that. If you're driven, is your drivenness coming out of envy of your neighbor or your desire for others to envy you? Or if you work, are you like the man in the final story who was just ignorant. He never thought about why he did what he did. He just worked and worked and worked and worked until one day he said, what on earth am I doing? Or do you work out of love for the God who gave you the gift of work and out of love for the people whom your work benefits? What lies behind your work and your toil? God wants us to ask that question today. 
then maybe it's time for us to make some decisions to create healthier work and rest rhythms in our lives. Some of us might need to do that. And if you struggle with overwork, which I'm guessing probably the majority of our church tends toward that side of things, then a practical tool you can use is a podcast called Fight, Hustle, and Hurry. I've only listened to the first episode, but it sounds pretty good. There's about 10 episodes in there, and they're just going to give you some tools for how to fight the hustle and the hurry and to resist overwork, to walk as disciples of Jesus in this area of your life. Now, if that's something you're interested in, take out your phone right now, go to your podcast, go to Spotify, type that that title in, Fight, Hustle, and Hurry, and download some of those podcasts. I hope it'll be a blessing for you. Because if we continue to treat work like it's all or nothing, we will not only hurt ourselves, but we will actually ruin our relationships. We'll end up alone, like the man in the final story, who in verse 8 had neither son nor brother. So the teacher in his third lesson points us towards a different way of living. Our culture might say, put your career first, put yourself first. But Kohelet teaches us that we're better together. We're better together. In verses 9 to 12, we read, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. And has no, uh, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Okay, single guys, don't take that verse out of context. That's talking about survival, all right? So don't go home to your girlfriend or something like that and say, it's a bit cold tonight. Have you read Ecclesiastes 4 verse 11? That's not what that's about. Anyway, thought I'd point that out. Verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. All right. So the basic message is we're better together. And I think we've learned this lesson a lot during this pandemic, during the lockdown and all the restrictions. They've shown us how much we need social connection. It's obvious that we're better together. And I think this drum gets beaten at church all the time. And yet so many of us don't have a friend who who really knows us and walks with us on a spiritual level. I wonder where you're at. I wonder if, if you're married, someone outside of your marriage, or if you're single, if you have a friend who knows you, who knows the sins that you struggle with, who knows your weak spots, who loves you enough that if you're going off in the wrong direction, that they're able to come up to you and say, hey, I'm nervous for you, man. I'm nervous for you. Can we, can we talk about this? I wonder if you've got someone like that. And I think one of the reasons that we don't sometimes have those relationships is because it's scary, especially those who have been hurt before or been burnt in a church before. In fact, Philip Ryken tells a story in his commentary that some of us will be able to relate to. He says, Consider the words of Carolyn Burnham in the film American Beauty, who tries to teach her daughter Jane how to cope with the disappointments of life. This is what she says to her. You're old enough now to learn the most important lesson in life. You cannot count on anyone except yourself. It's sad, but true. And the sooner you learn it, the better. Now, doesn't that 
resonate with so many of us? Don't so many of us just, just want to take that as our wisdom for living? Because people are sinful. People are broken. We'd be naive if we didn't think that we could ever get hurt in a relationship. But yet the way of the lone wolf is not the way of wisdom. And it's not the way of Jesus The teacher says in verse 10, pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Many of us don't have meaningful relationships because we're fearful. Others of us don't have life-giving relationships in our life simply because we haven't actually learnt Kohelet's second lesson yet. We're still too busy. We're still too overworked to actually make time for relationship. And I think if we can follow Jesus in that area, some of us will actually find more freedom to have and to build relationships like that. And I want to acknowledge that there are those of you in our church who do have these kind of meaningful relationships. You can attest to how helpful it is in your walk with Jesus. I know one brother in our church who uh, recently decided to open up to people more. And he's just been telling me um, how amazing it's been. And he's been open with people about some of his difficulties. And he's been amazed at how many different people have said, yeah, I've struggled with that. Yeah, I've struggled with that. So many people just don't open themselves up to others. But he has attested to how beautiful and how rich that has been in his own life. It strengthens you for life. There is strength in numbers. A three-quartered strand will not be quickly quickly broken. We're better together. So if you're listening today and you want to connect, you want to build strong relationships, then can I encourage you to get involved in a growth group? In a growth group, you'll be put together with other like-minded believers who love Jesus, who want to grow in their faith. And you will have an opportunity in those groups to love others, to serve them, to build relationships that are mutual, that are loving, that are real and authentic and honest. And if you want to join a growth group, if you're online, just click on that Get Connected link and fill out in the form details. Say, hey, I want to be part of a growth group. If you're here in person today, go and talk to one of our volunteers at the Connection Center after the service. We would love to help you get connected and to find real relationships in our church. We're better together. I want to encourage you not to silence God's voice if he's pressing that on your heart today. Trust his voice. Now, Kohelet doesn't promise that this better together wisdom will fix all the, um, all the problems in our society. But he does promise it is a better way of living. And he's given us his wisdom for making life a little bit better in this sometimes confusing and meaningless world. So far, he's looked at our justice system at the tears of the oppressed. He's looked at our economic system, the way we do work. He's looked at our social system, the way we do relationships. And now he's going to take a look at our political system. He's going to take a look at our leaders, the ones that we often look to, to make the decisions, to make the calls that will make our societies and our worlds right. Our world right. We don't have multiple worlds, do we? Anyway, now this final lesson is a little peculiar because the teacher has been kind of spouting off wisdom sayings throughout our chapter. But in this final lesson, he jumps into a parable. He tells a story about two kings in a kingdom to illustrate the lesson that leaders come 
and go. Leaders come and go. He says in verses 13 to 16, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. For youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Okay, there's a few moving parts in that story. So let me just retell it and explain that for you. So you've got two people. You've got this old but foolish king who can't take advice. And you've got this poor imprisoned youth who's wise. Now the first quick lesson the teacher draws for us is that it's better to be poor and humble but wise than it is to be successful and great but unwilling to take advice, but arrogant and proud. That's the first lesson. But anyway, that that king's reign eventually ends, and this youth rises up and takes over the throne. He came from this humble, poverty-stricken background, and he rises up to the throne, and he has this amazing reign. I mean, in verse 15, it says that, I saw all that who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth. Verse 16, there was no end to all the people who were before them. He had this huge reign. He had this successful reign. I mean, he had the wisdom. He knew what poverty and oppression was like, and he was able to bring a good rule to his society. But what is Kohelet's conclusion? Well, he says, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. I think the ESV translates that a bit better. It says, Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. In other words, this, this young king may have risen to the throne. He may have been a great king for a little while, but he would die. His kingdom would end. And those who would come later would not rejoice in him. And that's why leaders come and go. We, we cannot place our hope there we cannot place in a particular our hope in a particular political leader we may see a great leader rise up in our world someone who's who's humble who genuinely wants to serve those in their care but they too will die and who knows who will come after them and that's why despite the wisdom that the teacher gives us in our chapter he ultimately sounds a note of meaninglessness and hopelessness in our chapter, the word meaningless is repeated four times and chasing after the wind is repeated three times. There's a sense that although we may better our lives through wisdom, no amount of wise living, nor any leader or king can ultimately put our world right. The teacher has looked all over society in this chapter. He's look at, looked at the justice system and he's seen how many of the poor and oppressed have no one to comfort them. He's looked at our economic system. He's looked at the way we work, the way that we trample over one another to get what we want, the way that we destroy ourselves in that process. He's looked at the way we do relationships, how isolation and loneliness are just rampant throughout our societies. And then he took a look at our leaders, our kings and our political leaders. And he ultimately found that even they, even if a good one rose up, they cannot ultimately accomplish anything. And those who come after them will not rejoice in the good work one good leader 
might have done. Our society, our world is totally broken. And there's just this sense of utter hopelessness. The teacher's conclusion makes sense. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. But you see, this isn't the end of the Bible. Passages like Ecclesiastes 4 give us the wisdom to know how much we need someone greater to break into our world. And as we keep reading the Bible, we read passages like Isaiah 9 verses 6 to 7 where it says, For to us a child is born, and the government will be on his shoulders. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And as we keep reading, we learn later on that in Luke's gospel, this, this baby, this child to be born was Jesus. Luke chapter 2, it says, The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Lord. Jesus is the King our world needs. He's not only a good King, He's not only a humble King, He's a King that will last. You see, the youth who became king in Ecclesiastes 4. He went from rags to riches when he ascended the throne. But Jesus, the greater king, chose willingly to go from riches to rags to bring God's good rule upon our world. 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Jesus not only offers us true riches as a sheer gift, he offers justice to the poor and oppressed of our world. In Matthew 18, the disciples ask Jesus a question about his kingdom. And in verse 6, he says that if anyone causes one of his little ones, those who believe in him to stumble, all the oppressors and abusers of our world, he says, they won't get away with it. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You see, Jesus is very angry at the oppression and the injustice and the evil that goes under the sun. And justice will be done. And the oppressed who take refuge in Jesus will not be forgotten. His kingdom will never end. His kingdom is just and he's a wise and gracious king. Here's the big point of this message. Ecclesiastes 4 teaches us that we can and should better our lives with God's wisdom, but we can only save our lives through God's king. Let me say that again. Ecclesiastes 4 teaches us that we can and that we should better our lives and our world through God's wisdom, but we can ultimately only save our lives and our world through God's King, through Jesus. 
So, will you come to Jesus? He's available to you. He sees you. He knows you. He's good. He's a great king. He's a loving king, a just king. And he opens out his hands and he says in John's gospel that he will by no means turn away anyone who comes to him. He gave his life for sinners and sufferers. He died in our place to pay the penalty for the oppression we have participated in. And he rose again, conquering the grave and set up an everlasting kingdom. And you know what? Citizenship in his society is free of charge. He offers it to you out of love as a total act of grace. And so the question is, will you come to him? Will you trust this leader, this Jesus, to make your life and to make our world right? Because this is what God promises to those who put their trust in his king. This is beautiful. Isaiah 25, it says that God will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. When you put your trust in Jesus, you can know that he will not only save you, but he will give you a place in his kingdom that will never end. And one day you will see him face to face in the new world that he creates. And our worship of him will never diminish. It will never stop because this king will never die and his kingdom will never end. Let's praise him. Let's worship him. Let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. King Jesus, we just bow the knee to you. You are amazing. You are so humble that you chose to, to leave your throne in heaven and come into this world and humble yourself to the point of dying on a cross to save us. And so Jesus, we know that you are trustworthy, that you are good, and we put our faith in you. And we ask you to lead us through this world that can be so difficult, Lord. Have your way in us. Help us to align ourselves with you, with your kingdom, with your values. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live lives of wisdom. Help us, give us the strength and the courage to look at the tears of the oppressed. Lord, help us, give us the wisdom to do work well, to have one handful of the gift of toil and work and one handful of your rest and your tranquility. And Lord, we ask that you help us to build deep and meaningful relationships in this church, that this would be a place where people can find people who love you and who genuinely want to build into other people's lives. We pray for that, Lord. Build up our growth groups. Build up our community. Bless us with these kinds of relationships. We love you. We seek you today. And we pray this as your people. In the name of Jesus. Amen.